Welcome to Risk Never Sleeps, where we meet and get to know the people delivering patient care and protecting patient safety. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet. Welcome to the Risk Never Sleeps podcast, in which we learn about the people that are on the front lines delivering and protecting patient care. I'm Ed Gaudet, the host of our program, and today I am pleased to be joined by my good friend, J.D. Whitlock, the CIO at Dayton Children's Hospital. Welcome, J.D. Hey, Ed. Good to see you. How's that for an intro? Awesome. So let's get started. Tell our listeners a little bit more about your organization and your role. Sure. I've been CIO at Dayton Children's for just under six years now. Dayton Children's is a small pediatric health system in the Midwest, Dayton, Ohio. And we are on the small end of Epic customers and really a small end of health systems in general. However, that does not mean we are a small organization. And certainly from a cybersecurity perspective, we are, of course, we're expected to, and we have the same threats as much larger health systems, and we need to deal with that appropriately. So that is, that's where some of the challenge comes in sometimes, is how do we act and be like the larger systems that we have to perform at with, with a smaller team and a smaller budget? We are about... 650 million for a revenue. Let's see what else is relevant. One, one hospital, the two, two large campuses, the second campus, it's everything but a hospital. What about two dozen total care uh, facilities? Yeah. About 4,200 employees. What else is relevant? Warm work day. So we're about blessed to be on the, the best DHR and the best DRP. And we can spend a lot of our time optimizing those platforms yeah. and chasing after technical debt or people that are not. Small but mighty. And you were an early customer of Sensinet, obviously. So you tend to be more, much more on the, on the path of innovation, given some of your peers in the industry, which is great. So I know you helped us early on really build the platform and help us design the platform. And you, you continue to, to do that. Your team has given us some really good insight, even as early as today or as recent as today. We had a conversation with a few folks uh, from your team. So I really appreciate you and your organization and your team really helping us out. And adding a lot of value to the, and to obviously to the industry. So how did you get into healthcare? I got into healthcare. So I, I am retired military. I spent 20 years in the military. Thank you for your service. Thank you for paying your taxes. Good check everything <laughs> up. And are you I, Army or Marines? Uh, or? I was Navy and Navy? Air Force. Air Force. Which is okay. part of the story about how I get in healthcare. So I was, I uh, did Navy ROTC in college. I was a Navy mm-hmm. surface warfare officer which just means on ships. I was driving ships around the Desert Storm. Actually started Desert Storm by my ship shot the first Tomahawk missile from the Persian Gulf that started Desert Storm in, in, in 91. Yeah, yeah. So I did that for a while and I, I had a lot of fun doing that. I did two sea tours. My third tour of the Navy was I was a uh, ROTC instructor hmm. at UCLA. And uh, most normal people, decide what they want to do for grad school and then pick a grad school, go to it. I was at an incredible educational institution, UCLA. I mean, it was time to get a master's degree and I took a look around and said, what should I do for a master's degree? And so my experience was management experience and I, and healthcare was attractive because I like, I just like the mission aspect right. of healthcare, which sort of fit into the mission aspect of the military, which is part of why I got in the military. And hey, the concept that if you do a good job, then you're, you're helping patients and you're helping doctors and nurses and other caregivers take care of patients. So that's what sort of got me interested in it. I did a master of public health at UCLA, 
in health policy and management. And, and then long story short, I actually got, I got out of the military to finish that degree. And then, but I had a, I was a third of the way into a military career. And so I actually came back to do healthcare administration in the Air Force. Long story, not worth telling why I switched from the Navy to the Air Force, but it just worked out that way. And so then I second, or the, 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 the last two thirds of my military career, 13 years was a healthcare administrator in the Air Force, which is obviously a very large, very integrated delivery network, global integrated delivery network. And the guy was privileged to do a lot of, a, big, a large variety of jobs, starting down on the operational side before I got into the IT side. So I saw the, what was at the time, the, the largest patient center medical home. On a rollout with the entire Air Force Medical Service before it was cool. And uh, obviously a lot of, of course, military has been doing value-based care mm-hmm. forever before it was cool. Learned a lot of great lessons in, in population health management for these kind of things that, that were, then when I started from the Air Force 2009, um, moved over to private sector healthcare was just one value-based care we start was right. CMS was telling us you we're all going to do value-based care. And the fits and starts that we Nice transition with. into that. But I would do anyone frequently and still am sometimes and taking lessons learned from, from military health. And there's a lot of great things about military health. There's a lot of bad things about military health too, but it was really great experience. Where were you stationed in the Air Force? My first duty station in the Air Force was Marksdale Air Force Base in Shreveport, Louisiana. Ooh. Nice. Uh, then came to Wright-Patterson, where I am now in Dayton, Ohio. Then I did an educational assignment because military is so good. Education, they, they never got into to, to IT and they said, okay, go actually get smart on IT and go back and get a degree in IT. So I did that. And then actually I finished up in DC where a lot of people finish up their careers doing basically program, healthcare informatics, program management, let's call it. So did you in, retire in, as a colonel or um, uh, lieutenant colonel? Oh. Yeah, I made the decision nice. to not uh, go after the command trap mm-hmm. to get the next promotion, which would have meant going back to be being a generalist healthcare administrator. Mm-hmm. After I was deep into the IT, I really enjoyed the IT. I knew that I basically wanted to do something akin to what I'm doing now when I got out. And so it actually made sense to stay specialized and then not compete for that next promotion. So I'm very glad that's what I did. Yeah, no, I love that. I love the the common theme of the shared mission too, which is so unique in healthcare and obviously the military, but yet it's so powerful. And what does uh, that mean? What does that meant to you? The shared well, mission? By the way, it just occurred to me something else to mention. We we're talking about Air Force. I, I was looking at, at your other guest, the Risk Never Sleeps. Your number one guest was Drex Ford. Yes, that, that's right. As we, you may know, Drex is another. Uh, I did, yeah. Um, service corps that, so he and I worked together in, oh. in, in DC. Oh, and, you worked with um, Drex. Oh, cool. And, yeah. And a great guy, obviously. Yeah. And yeah. they were there, there was amongst the people in that massive bureaucracy, there were two kind of people. There were people that always uh, uh, went by all the rules of the bureaucracy and never got anything done. That wasn't Drex, I'm sure. That or was not you. Drex. That was not me. <laughs> and you had to know how to creatively slightly bend the rules. Yeah. To get any to get anything whatsoever done. And in particular, the rules that could never get anything done was what were some of the on the cyber side mm-hmm. was it was things were done so conservatively, you could never actually get that next thing onto the network that needed to be deployed. Um because of the mindless bureaucracy, uh, sometimes mindless bureaucracy 
of right. the cyber side. And so one of the reasons I really like the nonprofit healthcare world is you have the same sense of mission, but now that you're out of the bureaucracy of the government, there's still some, you still have to, as we like to say, no margin, no mission. You still have to actually make the dollars make sense and you can't do really dumb things or you won't be in business anymore. Right. Whereas the government right. just keeps doing really dumb things and, and <laughs> prints more money, right? That's right. That's right. No politics on the show here. No politics. <laughs> hey, I'm no, a middle just... of the road guy. I can abuse both sides. <laughs> you can. Did Drex wear the red sneakers back then? Or <laughs> don't recall red sneakers in uniform. No, that would have been that. That would have been a little too far. Blue. A little too far. Plus, it wouldn't have gone yeah. well with blue. Yeah, exactly. I just ran into him recently. He had blue sneakers on. He had the blue variation of those sneakers. So, what as you think about the next couple of years? What are you leaning into? What are your top three priorities? So obviously, generative AI is huge. You can't, it's both a cliche and also just the reality that's going to end. The challenge for healthcare CIOs and CISOs is how do you take advantage of it in smart ways that you can afford? And as we are always fighting against the bright, shiny objects that somebody saw someplace and thinks is going to change things, but is either not really going to change things or is not really commercializable or potentially a, a cyber threat or just doesn't actually plug into our, to our, you know, clinical workflows, right? And so there are um, some things that I think are sort of no-brainers like the uh, ambient AI uh, clinical documentation that I would predict a year from now, if health systems are going slow on that and not procuring those tools for their providers that are going to be uh, losing their providers to other uh, right. health systems that have. So we're, we're yeah. aggressively looking at those tools. And then back to being blessed to be on Epic, uh, Epic's were because of their existing partnership with Microsoft, they were in a very good position to rapidly take advantage of a lot of the open AI stuff. And so they're rolling out a lot of great tools to, for example, help providers to sort of, sort of auto drafts of responses to patient messaging and just summaries of, hey, here's everything that happened with this patient since you last saw them six months ago or a year ago. And just in a easy to reference, easy to digest form in that one minute you have before you walk in the patient. So some of these things, obviously, we're not talking about diagnosing the patient. We're not talking about automatically sending things to the patient. We're just talking about uh, provider efficiency, yeah, which is that. the no-brainer thing that the generative AI should be doing. Absolutely. There. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it'll get better too over time, obviously. But the next couple of years will be really interesting to watch in AI in particular. That's like the early 90s of the internet. On the cyber side, I tried to see, keep up on this in the trade press. And there are some great tools that are using generative AI to help with defending. In addition to the fact, yes, it makes the bad guys a little bit faster, a little smarter to use some of these tools. But so, we're using abnormal security for to catch the inbound fish. And it does a pretty nice job at that with some AI on the hood there. And some of the things, some of the biggest threats right now, we're, we're seeing more of the attacker in the middle to that successfully gets past multi-factor. That's increasingly prevalent. That's not generative AI. It's just smarter bad guys using all the tools at their disposal. And so we're also uh, using a... Uh, managed detection response vendor that's been uh, just within the last year that's really been um, helping out a very small team, which is which cannot be 
eyeballs on glass 24 hours a day. Right. So you need a good uh, vendor like that. So anyways, never want to brag about your ever last year, you're, gonna, you're guaranteed uh, more problems. Right. Uh, but I think on that front, the generative AI is like a smarter, much smarter people than I ever wise have sort of said yeah. it. It's not automatically true that the, that's going to make the bad guys, that's an advantage for the bad guys, as, as long as you're also leveraging it on, on, on the defending side. Yeah. How about care delivery? Any shifts in care delivery that you're thinking about over the next couple of years? Yes and no. We are... Um, getting into primary care now, actually for the first time, which is actually odd for most health systems, been doing and doing that for a while. Dating Children's for reasons it's not worth going into on this podcast was had a clinically integrated network, a common care organization, but we had but not not owned primary care practices mm-hmm. with one exception, which is a residency clinic mm-hmm. uh, inside the walls for hospital. We're going down that. Roots and that is just changes some of our strategy on the epic side and, and what we're doing there. And then we have a we have a low acuity urgent care, which is branded Kids Express, which is sort of the mm. low, which is your kids got a ear infection. Yeah, you get home from work and your kids got an ear infection. You want to come in after hours. We continue to open up more of those. Now, obviously, part of where you maybe we're going with that uh, question is everybody's talking about telehealth, obviously, and of course, pandemic got us past the big hump we needed to go for it. Right. But to make sure that everybody could do that. And then, but of course, since the pandemic, then the, the, the rates of telehealth have been going down. Down. And so now we're in a place where most people are in that 10 to 20% of ambulatory visits that are appropriate follow an appropriate follow-up chronic care visit that can be done uh, on a video visit so the family doesn't have to drive an hour and a half to get to us. We want to do that. With the video, is it? But most of the time, if you want your kids seen by the doctor, you actually pr- prefer to drive them in to see the doctor. Exactly. Yeah. Especially during times that work for you. So you brought up the pandemic, which is a great segue into the next question. Tough couple of years for obviously healthcare, the industry individually a lot tough on a lot of folks. What are you personally and professionally most proud of? In terms of our response to the pandemic? Yeah. Just yeah, coming sure. out of the pandemic and either during or after the pandemic. Sure. We were, I think, in a good place from an, from an IT perspective. Everybody was, of course, challenged by lots of people going to work from home and by obviously the telehealth, all go fast on telehealth. We were blessed to be in a place we had actually less than six months previous to the start of the pandemic done the integration work we needed to have a, a video visit plug into to Epic. So we were ready to go with that. And the actually, the problem we had, and probably a lot of people had, was we were ready to go on the software side, but we did not have every, we, we in our exam room, so a lot of small PCs mounted over the desk, a lot of people have, not, lap, not providers just walking around with laptops with cameras on them. And so mm-hmm. we didn't have enough cameras. Of course, in the middle, you couldn't get cameras because everybody up because the stock of webcams got right. quickly, right. and it was it was a struggle to find webcams. And then as we got them in, we'd have to go in and we say, "Okay, Clinic X, you have two workstations that are going to have are going to be telehealth capable. So if you have a video, when you have a video, was scope going that one?" And and then we last year we opened a new ambulatory patient tower, 
And we made sure that all 110, 110 and 120 total exam rooms, every single exam room is completely decked out for, for telehealth. Oh, nice. The little webcams that swivel around and uh, additional monitor on the wall and all, all that kind of stuff set up that's ready for that. Even though so if you look at the actual rates of video visits, it's still yeah. on the 10 to 20% range, like most places. Cool. So outside of healthcare and IT, what are you most passionate about? What would you be doing if you weren't doing this job? What I'd be doing if I wasn't doing this job? Yeah. I mean, I do love what I do. So what are your hobbies? I, it's not, yeah. oh, what are my hobbies? Oh, yeah, do you have any, do you have sure. any hobby that if you weren't doing do this? I have and, hobbies, yes. <laughs> I know you have uh, hobbies, I've seen yes. them. <laughs> so I am a uh, baseball fan. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've, I've followed the Cincinnati Reds and the uh, single A team for the Reds, the Dave Dragons. I have a ticket package too, and they are, I can walk to uh, the stadium. My wife and I lived in downtown Dayton after I youngest graduated from high school. We nice. uh, moved out of the burb with a good school district and moved downtown. And, and the graphic behind me is, is the, the Dayton Arcade, which as you can tell from looks of it is one of those built in the early 1900s, the original indoor mall. And it's been beautifully restored. And that's actually where my office done time. Layout is that's literally the view outside of my. If I turn the other way and look, that's the view. That's outside beautiful. Of my yeah. So I live a few blocks from here. The ballpark, which is the nicest single A ballpark in baseball, is a few blocks from here. So I can on a on many summer evenings, I'll be found at the ballpark. I I enjoy motorcycle riding. Huh. I don't play golf. If it's a nice day, and I got some buddies to go do things with. I'm I'm riding a motorcycle. You're on the bike. Golf. What, what kind golf. of bike do you have? Uh, uh, Triumph T120 Bonneville. Nice. That's the, it's the, it's like a classic looking or modern engineered motorcycle. Yeah. And then my wife and I are foodies, but we love the trail and I'm a history buff. So traveling someplace, seeing interesting history and then having a really nice meal. That would be sort of. What was your last trip? Last trip we did Pacific Northwest with uh, both of our daughters and we did Seattle, Willamette Valley. South of Portland, Cannon Beach in Oregon, did some widow watching and then a lot of great food. Some great Pinots up in Willamont. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful Pinots. <laughs> Very nice. You could go back in time. What would you tell your 20 year old self? My 20 year old self. Mm -hmm. I would have told my, I would have given my 20 year old self some advice on women, probably. It all worked out well. I've been happily married to my wife for 27 years. Oh, that's great. Um, but when I was- Congratulations. 20, I'm not sure I'd quite figured out. You know, I'm a, back in, in the, the military day, at that point? Back in the day before I'm 20, our RTC student at that Yeah, point. you're still in RTC, yeah. But yeah, back in the day before dating apps, you had to, had to actually approach another human being and talk to them. I'm very good at that when I was 20. <laughs> I don't think any of us are really good at that. <laughs> I still wonder if I'm any good at it. Okay, so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. It's the Risk Never Sleeps podcast. JD, what's the riskiest thing you've ever done? The riskiest thing I've ever done. So I mentioned I ride a motorcycle. That's inherently risky. Mm -hmm. A simple accident that in a car would not be a, a horrible thing could be a, right. can be a horrible thing uh, on a motorcycle. I don't, I, I, I always wear all my safety gear. I don't do anything. I'm not one of those crazy people you see weave it around in cars. Mostly I just want to tool around some country roads and go out with some buddies and eat at a barbecue place out in the country and ride. But, but I do understand that is an inherently risky 
activity, I decided it's worth the fun of doing it. But that isn't how we risky. The joke of my wife is when I, every time I leave, she goes, is your health insurance or is your life insurance pay up? Yes, it is. But I mean, that you recognize that you, when you do risky things, you recognize what that is. That's yeah. one thing. Uh, what's the other, not like physically risky, but I did, I do some um, entrepreneurial, sort of hobby entrepreneurial things with a side. And so I did, I started internet marketing company the side and needed to put some money in that to get that started. That was not big risky because I did not quit my day job and I did not like trade in my whole 401k to get that started. <laughs> That's good. So in the big That's scheme good. of things, it wasn't that risky. Yeah. I, I say I enjoy the entrepreneurial community. And the, the, I mentioned in my office is here, this, what you see behind me. Yeah. It's sort of, it's the concept that's like where these incubator is mm-hmm. and it's a entrepreneur center and they give a lot of support to small businesses. I enjoy the community here, but a lot of the other people here are doing, no kidding, quit your day job and try to make something go while supporting the family. So I never did. Yeah. I never did anything like that. I would probably say I'm relatively risk averse. I thought. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. I don't know if you jumped out of a plane or no. swim, swim with the shark. I never did anything crazy. No. I, crazy. I never, and that, that was actually part of the deal with my wife. So I, I got married right about the time I was switching from the Navy to the Air Force. And, and my wife was actually in the Navy Reserve. So she understood right. the military. But at the same time, I was getting married, starting a family. And part of the deal was like, I wasn't going to, volunteer to do anything dangerous right any more than i had to in the military i did one one deployment uh in the air force to afghanistan uh, but i was i'm a healthcare administrator so working at the hospital at the Mm -hmm. big base i'm Mm -hmm. not riding around Mm -hmm. in humvee and there was an opportunity while i was there do a different job riding around the humvee going out to the so and and so i did not do that because i had promised my wife what not to do that. Not do anything <laughs> any more risky than I had to do. And the joke was, so I was living in DC at the time. The joke was, I was probably at more risk driving on the Beltway. <laughs> beltway traffic is probably more chance that I was going to yeah. run over by a Mack truck on the Beltway mm-hmm. than that some rocket was going to land on my head mm-hmm. in in Bagram Air Base. And that's probably literally true. I was probably at more risk on the Beltway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always ask folks about music or movies or. So if you're on a desert island and you can only bring five records or yep. five mo- movies, what would they be? Yeah, the old desert island disc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I enjoy classical music. Mm-hmm. And so I would go with Beethoven's Night, uh, Mozart's Requiem. It's not that I don't enjoy temporary music. I do, but in terms of listenability for a few of the little things that you can yeah. bring. So I'd probably go with those two. And then can I, can you do many series for the movies? Yeah, you can do it. Right, so I'm going with, I'm going with Ken Burns. Ah, the, baseball. The Ken Burns, the baseball one. <laughs> That's and of course, great. Civil War when I'm a military history buff. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, so. Civil War, me too. Yeah. yeah. Have you been yeah. to Gettysburg? Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Isn't yeah. it great? Great. Me yeah. too. Me too. And then if you went for just number one favorite all time movie. It's Last of the Mohicans. Oh, that's good. Which, of course, brilliantly blends military history with just an incredible drama with a, with a great yeah. romance. Yeah. It's just, it just has everything. Has everything, yeah. That's good. Awesome. One last question. What advice would you give to new 
maybe kids coming out of school that want to get into cyber or into IT and into healthcare, what advice would you give them? Sure. So the wonderful thing about IT is you can have very rewarding career, both in terms of the getting to do interesting things and getting paid good money to do it, whether or not you ever do the management track. Most professions, that is not true, but that's a really wonderful thing about IT in general. And of course, it's cyber and it's sort of a subcategory of IT. So if you decide you want to dive deep on some aspects um, of cybersecurity or data analytics, or you want to be the best network engineer, you can get really good at those things and make good money. Or if I was talking to a really sharp young IT person now, I'd say, go do cloud architecture. Mm, exactly. Get a few certifications <laughs> and go on money doing that. So that's the number one thing is, is go get some experience, figure out what you like to do, go get those certifications and you can have a really nice, yeah. have a really nice career doing that. And then if you decide you also working with people and managing teams or maybe project management or whatever other things like that, then great. You can do that too, but you don't have to do that. And then on the healthcare side, I would just say when I said in getting high, my, I never regretted my choice of getting into healthcare for the reasons I said. It's, it's just awesome to, to work in an industry where if you do a good job, then patients get better and doctors and nurses uh, can do their job and not have to think about the IT. Now, I'll also say to people, you're not on the pointy end of the spear. You're working in IT. So if you're a glory hound, then IT is not the place for you to. <laughs> That's right. Especially not right. cyber either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. That's terrific. Thank you, JD. This is Ed Gaudet coming from the Risk Never Sleeps podcast. And remember, if you're on the front lines delivering patient care or protecting patient safety, remember to stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. Thanks for listening to Risk Never Sleeps. For the show notes, resources, and more information and how to transform the protection of patient safety, visit us at sensinet.com. That's C-E-N-S-I-N-E-T.com. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet, and until next time, stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. Risk never sleeps.